0: Like I said, my name is Josh, and together with a, a group of um, very capable men and women, I help lead Van City Church. Now, my protect, particular area of responsibility, if you didn't know, like if you go to vancity.church and look at the website, thanks, Kim, you'll find that uh, I am uh, responsible for the teaching and the overall vision of Van City Church. I mentioned this not to brag. But because it brings me great joy to utilize said responsibility to bring you the following clip. Hey. Hey. Sorry, we're late. Oh, it's no problem. Here's your big salad. Thank you, Julie. Oh, you're very welcome. So, well, I guess I better get going. <laughs> Did you see what just happened? There? Well, that all depends. Did you happen to notice that Julie handed the big salad to Elaine? Yeah, so? Well, she didn't buy the big salad. I bought the big salad. Is that a fact? Yes, it is. She just took credit for my salad. (laughs) That's not right. No, it isn't. I mean, I'm the one that bought it. Yes, you did. Don't you think she should have said something? She could have. Oh, I know. Imagine her taking credit for your big salad. (laughs) You know, you buy a big salad for somebody, it would be nice if they knew it. Obviously. Now, some of you are, I hope, already familiar with what is arguably the second greatest sitcom of all time, second only to The Simpsons. And with this particular episode, which is the big salad, the casual Seinfeld fan, however, is less familiar with the fact that many of the show's more absurd story arcs are actually taken with very minimal reworking from the life of Seinfeld co-creator Larry David, on whom the character of George Costanza is actually based. Here is Larry talking about this episode. I was sitting in the editing room, and I was going to go out to get something to eat, and uh i asked our editor what um, what she wanted and she said she would like a big salad <laughs> so janet Chicago, who's our editor had ordered a big salad carol my assistant brings her the big salad i had bought the salad and, and carol handed it to her and and she thanks carol and larry is upset that he doesn't get credit for making sure she got the big salad If it was a regular salad, I wouldn't have said anything. But you had to have that big salad! Now, George Costanza, though a hyperbolic, fictionalized version of an actual person, uh, is funny because he's petty, and he's selfish, and he's insecure. You know, in fiction, flawed characters are uh, endlessly more interesting than those less so. But if you scale down the hyperbole, you'd actually be hard-pressed to find someone among us who would not side with George in the argument over the big salad, because our culture is actually enamored with recognition. Recognition is the fuel that propels many of our acts of work, our vocations, our kindness, our sacrifice, even our uh, hobbies and pastimes. And I sometimes challenge uh, some of my friends who love to uh, travel or who love to hike, take a lovely vacation, visit some beautiful location, enjoy an amazing hike, but post no pictures on the internet. I dare you to attempt this. Partner with a charity, visit the developing world, donate, work, sacrifice, and tell no one. Try it. And of course, it's not the telling that's bad, obviously. And recognition, uh, uh, honestly, in and of itself, is not innately evil, but it can be dangerous we at Van City are apprentices of Jesus. We go on and on about it. So in everything, we look to our teacher and our Lord to learn the best way to be a human being. So with that said, let's read Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 and work through the text line by line. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. All summer now, we have been working our way through this divisive, controversial, Uh, beautiful, life-giving collection of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. We just made our way through Jesus, not at all challenging words on nonviolence and enemy love. Uh, We do actually have more to say on that topic, so we're releasing a series of podcasts in the days ahead. Uh, They'll be on vancity.church, or if you want to go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast, you can listen that way as well. Now, previously, Jesus has made clear that his purpose within the Sermon on the Mount, within this collection of teachings is not to abolish the legal code of the Old Testament, but to direct his disciples' attention to God's heart behind the legal code of the Old Testament, meaning the law, the Torah, teaches not to murder, sure. But God's desire for his people is that they would live in total peace with one another. Therefore, Jesus says, reject even anger against a brother or a sister. The law in the Torah condemns adultery, and rightly so, but Jesus points out that His disciples must reject even the lust, the objectification, the oppression of women that leads to adultery The law requires a certificate of divorce to protect the woman who would be victimized by her husband effectively kicking her out of the house, but God's will is that no husband would kick their wife out of the house, that no couple would become divorced at all. The the law requires that if you make an oath, you cannot break it, but if Jesus' disciples simply tell the truth always in the first place. There's actually no need for oaths at all. Therefore, the disciple of Jesus should refrain from oaths altogether. The law requires that no one repay violence with greater violence or with vengeance or with a greater payment, but the disciple of Jesus breaks the cycle of violence by rejecting it altogether in all its forms. The law requires that the people of God should love their neighbors as themselves, but in order to become like God, the Father, in order to have solidarity with God and to know Him better, the disciple of Jesus goes further and loves their enemies as themselves. This is what scholars call the greater righteousness of Jesus. It isn't that Jesus is throwing out the Old Testament, but the law was essentially damage control. It was a means of guiding rebellious Israel back to a better way of life. The law was something like a fence that kept Israel from running out into the street. And Jesus is revealing God's truest desire for his kids. It's not just damage control. The desire is that God's kids would become like God himself. They would be full of peace and purity and honesty and gentleness and nonviolent love for everyone. Next, Jesus will shift his approach from a revelation of the greatest greater righteousness to a warning against false righteousness. For Jesus, the greater righteousness is about imitating God, and false righteousness is about impressing people. And Jesus has a name for those who engage in false righteousness. He calls them the hypocrites. Disciples of Jesus are to observe the habits of the hypocrites and to reject them. So just as Jesus offered six examples of what we call the greater righteousness, and he did so with antitheses. So he said, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus is now going to build a case against false righteousness with three examples, and each of them are based on contrast. For example, the way a hypocrite practices three religious duties and the way a disciple of Jesus practices those same religious duties. So you have generosity, then prayer, and finally fasting. And Jesus makes specific note of these duties performed in public versus accomplishing them in what he calls secret. And notice that Jesus' approach is not to encourage his disciples to begin to give, that they need to start praying, that they should learn how to fast. He actually just assumes that his disciples will do those things. He takes that for granted. The issue in question is how they will do them and what will motivate them to do so. Now, One immediate complication comes to mind, at least it did for me, and it's actually from earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, Jesus just said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But now, it seems that Jesus is insisting that his disciples' good deeds be done in secret. But actually, this uh, alleged discrepancy is pretty easily resolved. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about the entire character and lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus. But here in Matthew 6, Jesus is zeroing in specifically on spiritual disciplines or on religious duties. This is a bit difficult for us to understand as modern Protestants. Uh, but first century Judaism was a religion rich with customs and traditions for, one for which one might seek approval or even religious acclaim. And even so, there is a bit of relatability here for us as well. There's an obvious temptation Uh, To rave and seek praise from other people and how eloquent one might pray in front of people or how much they pray and what their little Morning routine looks like how much money they give away how much uh, Given over they are in worship and so on how much you serve at church or how many trips? You've taken to the developing world how well you sing worship songs and harmonize or if your hands go up or they stay down Whatever it might be so Matthew 5 letting your light shine before men is really about being spiritually formed, your overall character taking shape with the kind of character and integrity that cannot help but, in Jesus' words, shine before men. But look at the specifics of this text. Look again at verse 1. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And I was actually, when I studied this week, struck by the introduction because Jesus begins with be careful, meaning this text is actually a a warning. And the warning is, of course, against practicing righteousness in front of others. The Greek word that your Bible translates as righteousness is uh, daikaiosone, interestingly uh, how to best translate that word is widely debated among scholars, but they generally agree that this, in this particular passage, the word has to do with this idea of being in right relationships, meaning when we are in healthy, flourishing relationships, connectedness with God, with other people, then you become generous and in particular with the needy people among us, is the language that Jesus used, or what we might describe as the poor or the oppressed or those that society has deemed worthless or actually a drain on society, those that we've pushed to the margins of society. So Jesus is saying that when you do good for those in need, when you are in right relationships with the so-called worthless person, be careful not to exercise the outworking of that right relationship in front of others. If you do, Jesus says, there will be no reward from your Father, which actually seems simple enough, uh, but the implications are actually quite confusing if you stop and start to sort it out. To begin, how exact is this instruction? Can no one ever see you do anything generous to the poor and the oppressed? If they do, is it better not to give to those in need at all? What does it mean to be rewarded by God? Uh, What does it mean to forfeit that reward? So let's work our way to Jesus' intended purpose by first clearing away what he is not saying. And this is actually kind of obvious when you parse it out. Firstly, Jesus does not intend to discourage doing good for those in need. In fact, the proof is actually in the following line when Jesus says to his disciples, when you give to the needy, not if you feel led to give to the needy. Jesus simply assumes that his disciples will give to those in need they will do good works. The question is how? And this actually invites emphasis because many of us familiar with church culture have developed something uh, of an aversion to this term good works It's a long story, but it has to do with the aftermath of the Reformation, which, uh, understandably, was an overreaction to 16th century Catholicism, which highly emphasized uh, good works. And in doing so, good works became like a bad thing, like a dirty word. The authors of the New Testament do not share the Reformed sort of good works phobia. Here's just a few examples among many. In Galatians 6, it says, Let us not lose heart in doing good. In Paul's letter to his protege Timothy, he argues that the scriptures themselves are for doing good works, writing, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus, of course, was known for doing good works, and the early church celebrated this fact, writing this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And the aversion to good works ordinarily has to do with a fear of what is sometimes called works-based salvation or the idea that we can actually curry God's favor via our performance, whether or not we're good or bad. But Paul understands the fact that our performance has played absolutely no part in God saving us. And even so, we are supposed to do good works. He writes this, God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And then he goes on. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. All that to say, Jesus is obviously not discouraging good works. That much is clear. But moreover, Jesus isn't actually discouraging that good works should be hidden altogether. It's quite easy to read Jesus' warning with an emphasis on the words, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, which seems pretty direct. But what words immediately follow those? Anyone? They're right there in front of you if you have your Bible up Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. So you're Just reading it off the paper now. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. In order to be seen by them, you don't have to be a philosopher to work out the complications in only doing good things that no one else can ever know about, right? That becomes pretty problematic. If you think back to earlier, Jesus commanded that his disciples might let their light shine before others that they may see what? Yes, your good deeds, your good works. But the outcome of others seeing your good deeds is where the distinction lies. What does Jesus predict will happen when our light shines before others and they see our good deeds? Come on, you guys got it. That's it. Thanks, Taylor. They will glorify your Father in heaven. Really, this is a question about attribution. When your good works are carried out in the public square, are they done so in such a way that the credit naturally flows to God or to you? So then Jesus is not commanding that we hide all of our good works per se. What is he saying? We've already begun to work that out. Uh, The key here is the latter half of Jesus' opening line. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In Greek, the term is actually where we derive the English word theater. So it could be translated, don't put on a show for others, or more literally, don't put on a theater for others. Jesus is addressing right action compelled By wrong motivation. That by itself seems quite simple and eh, eh, even a tad boring. Sure, that makes sense. Don't do the right things for the wrong reasons. But what's interesting, I think, is Jesus' concern for the behavior of his disciples, the way they interact with one another, with God, with creation, and more importantly, why they do those things. This is interesting because often the story of Jesus, or what we would call the gospel, is reduced to a story about God's love, Jesus' death on the cross, and consequently how you can be saved. In fact, some would go as far to say that the gospel isn't about behavior modification And with respect, I beg to differ. It seems to me that Jesus intends our behavior would become radically modified as a result of our discipleship. This is why Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom of God, what we're going through right now, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with six examples of how his disciples are to live, how they are to behave and interact with one another relationally, free of anger, free of lust, faithful, truthful, nonviolent peacemakers. And when Jesus shifts his topical approach in this passage, he does so to address the internal disposition that compels right living. He begins with how we are to live, and then he moves on to the heart that powers this way of life. And I've mentioned before this very strange story uh, of how I was invited by this nonprofit to visit Israel with a group of uh, what was deemed to be influential figures. I honestly think I was there by mistake. That's not false modesty or anything, but I wasn't going to turn it down. I was like, hopefully they won't notice and I'll go. So there were like a few politicians. There was this publisher. There were a couple of pastors, but most of the group were uh, professional social media personalities. Uh, Obviously, it makes sense. They want them to go and spread the about Israel, I guess. Get excited about Israel. Um, In millennial-speak, they were storytellers. Now, it's not an innately bad thing, but as you'll see in this case, it was kind of a bit troubling. Part of our trip, which was designed to educate us about all things Israel, included a day at Jerusalem's incredible Holocaust Museum. Uh, Before disembarking the bus, our tour guide warned us that no photography was allowed in the museum whatsoever. So this immediate panic erupt on the bus. We're like, what will we post? This is real, real things being said on the bus. Uh, if, if we can't take pictures, how will anyone be inspired? How will they know that we were here? You know, that kind of thing. And so a large segment of the group decided after, you know, a, a huddle that they would spend the day outside the museum because there was this nice landscape right there. And each of them would take turns photographing one another in front of this landscape. And they would tag each other, like, at Jerusalem's Incredible Holocaust Museum in tears, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's easy to pick on this sort of person. At least it's easy for me to pick on this sort of person. But let's turn the, uh, the, the accusing finger back at myself for a second. Take my job, for example. I'm a professional Christian. That's what I tell people. My job is actually uh, to read the Bible study people way smarter than me, write down what they say, talk about the Bible, pray about it, think about it, and then talk to you guys about it. On paper, this really seems like a slam dunk spiritually. I mean, like it looks good on a resume, a spiritual resume, but honestly, full disclosure, I'm sure this doesn't come as a surprise for many of you, I have sometimes done my job to be celebrated in my own small little circle. I have sometimes really desired your uh, applause, figuratively speaking. I want you to think that I'm funny or that I'm smart or that I'm well-read. I want you to be thrilled by my funny stories about going to Israel and these other dorks that are not as cool as me. Um, And because of this, you know, sometimes uh, I'm talking to my therapist about this desire of mine and how it makes me feel icky. And he was telling me earlier this week that as a result of my particular wiring, I struggle to disentangle my reality from my feelings, which are irrevocably connected to the things that I make. So in other words, the way I feel is often what's most real to me, and I can't differentiate between what's real and what I feel, and uh, whereas someone like uh, my wife Abby can effortlessly divorce thinking from feeling, which is advantageous sometimes, other times not so much. Uh, And we'll actually talk about this quite a bit in our next practice in the fall. Uh, And so my therapist is telling me, like, well, you know, like for you, your sermons are like an art gallery. And the way that you'd approach art philosophically is that you'd rather someone like set paintings on fire or reject them or be outraged, anything but meet them with indifference. And so I have on occasion done the right thing, I think, like study the Bible, talk about theology with you guys, but for the wrong reasons so that you would be thrilled or entertained or whatever it might be. And don't misunderstand me. It's not that the natural desire to be seen and valued by others is inherently wrong. It's not. It's a question of what compels you to do the things that you do. Uh, In the immortal words of Kermit the Frog, you don't need the whole world to love you. Maybe you just need one person. I don't know if he was talking about Jesus, but I took it that way. And that's, uh, that's what Jesus is actually getting at in the teachings ahead. To get that, we can take his opening words in chapter six as essentially a summary statement of what follows, a thesis for the examples that follow, which are giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Do not do any of them for the acclaim of others. He goes on to elaborate. Look at Matthew 6, verse 2. So, when you give to the needy, not if you feel led, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. The Greek word that your Bible translates as give to the needy is actually another tricky word to translate. It's it's connected to the widely diminished term almsgiving. Now, almsgiving, though widely intended to mean acts of charity is derived from a Greek word that literally means mercy. So to give alms literally means to dispense mercy. And I like this term because it casts a much wider net than, you know, the translation give to the needy, which many of us innately interpret to deal with donating finances. And it is that, but it's actually much more. Almsgiving is about giving to the church or donating to charity or bringing foster kids into your home or welcoming refugees in Jesus' name or sponsoring a child or working with DHS and on down the list. The distribution of mercy, not just money, The self-sacrificial love of Jesus made manifest in a great number of ways. And really, Jesus' interest in almsgiving should come as no surprise whatsoever. The Old Testament is absolutely overflowing with God's concern for the poor, for the oppressed, for the refugee, and for the foreigner in particular. In Hebrew, the same exact word, tzedakah, is used for both almsgiving and for righteousness. To dispense mercy, to give to those in need, was to be righteous. Even when the temple was destroyed in in, uh, AD 70, almsgiving replaced the system of animal sacrifice and it became the means by which Jewish people atoned for their sins by dispensing mercy. All that to say God cares deeply for giving to the needy, for dispensing mercy. New Testament scholar R.T. France notes this, By the first century, there was a well-organized system of relief for the poor based in the synagogues, providing something of what our modern state-sponsored welfare systems aim to offer. The funding of this system was dependent on contributions from members of the community, which could reach such an extent that there were rabbinic regulations to prevent a man from impoverishing himself and his family by giving away more than 20% of his income. So get that. There were actually rules in place to limit giving because people would go poor giving their money away. So in that sense, Jesus isn't introducing this novel new concept. Indeed, as we've said earlier, uh, he simply assumes his disciples will give to the needy. Jesus is simply commenting on the motivation that compels that giving. And he does so by utilizing a negative, don't do it this way, followed by a positive, do it this way. And the negative is the condemnation of announcing your giving with trumpets, which I've seen a lot of you guys do, and frankly, I was deeply disturbed by it. There actually seems to be no record, uh, I looked, of anyone actually announcing their giving with trumpets. I was like, is this a thing that people did? Uh, But I think the imagery is clear enough, right? At any rate, the hypocrites... Give this way by announcing with trumpets, figuratively speaking. And this is the first use of that word, which is in Greek, Hippocrates. Jesus will go on to use it a further 17 times more often than not to describe the religious leaders of his day. Ouch. Uh, And get this. Hippocrates did not suffer from the same pejorative overterm as our English word, hypocrites, does today. Hippocrates were actors. They were people who performed on a stage. And the word would conjure up immediate imagery in the minds of Jesus' listeners. After all, the Roman city of Sepphoris was just miles away, and Sepphoris was a home to a newly constructed uh, theater, parts of which still stand to this very day. Uh, And here's a fun fact to uh, the nerd in our midst who is like myself, maybe none of you, but either way, you've got to listen to me now. Um, In the biographies of Jesus' life, he's described as having been a tecton, which we previously translated as a carpenter, but actually Nazareth that we know of didn't deal in woodcrafts, and tecton has a meaning that's more literally like a construction worker. So uh, many scholars have concluded that Jesus worked as a stonemason, perhaps in the city of Sephorus, which was near Nazareth, and he may have helped build uh, the theater there, which is actually pretty incredible, I think. It's still there. Uh, This picture is not mine, by the way. I googled it. Uh, I did visit the location, but I was was so perturbed by the Instagram crowd around me that I vowed to take no pictures except of street cats, among which there were many in Israel. Here's some. Uh, This is in Galilee. Right in front of me is like a a real synagogue. (laughs) I'm taking a picture of the cats. Uh, They told me not to touch them. Here's another one. Here's me at the, the remaining uh, wall, the wailing wall, right in the heart of uh, Jerusalem. Here's a cat that was chilling with me while I watched the celebration. I came home with these pictures and Abby's like, are you kidding me? You don't take any pictures of real stuff. I have more of these, but I won't bore you guys with them. At any rate, the idea of theater, uh, of the stage, and of actors was something readily known by Jesus' audience. So think less. Uh, hypocrites, and more like Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of behaving like actors. He's saying that their giving is insincere. They don't really mean it. It's for show. It's a sham. In fact, some speculate, this is actually fascinating, that one reason the word hypocrite took on its modern meaning in the Western world, which we take to mean like a deceitful phony who does not practice what they preach, one reason it came to mean that is actually because of Jesus teaching, which is actually really fascinating. But there's something a bit surprising about what follows. Jesus' critique of hypocrisy isn't delivered with the warning that you might expect. Why would you not be a hypocrite? Because, hey, listen, if you behave hypocritically, you could mar the name of God. You could turn people away from the faith, which is true. But instead, Jesus' warning has to do with, of all things, a reward. He says, truly I tell you, they, the hypocrites, have received their reward in full. Matthew is using this Greek term that has to do with uh, receiving a receipt after purchasing an item. Jesus is saying, if you give to the needy for the approval of an audience, you will get the approval of audience, probably, and that's all you get. And Jesus then moves on to the correct methodology of almsgiving, Matthew 6, verse 3. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Jesus is using clever imagery to describe this sort of innate disposition. He doesn't mean that you actually have to accomplish some kind of sneaky left-right hand thing. Uh, You know, to understand, think of this question. How many times have you blinked since this teaching began? You don't actually have to yell out an answer because uh, unless you're incredibly gifted in counting your blinks, you have no idea. Uh, your mind does not know what your eyelids are doing in the same sense that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. That to say, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to grow and mature in their almsgiving to the degree that it becomes like blinking. Far from theater, far from a spectacle, it's just what you do. And to explain it better, here is a quote from none other than Dallas Willard himself, due in part to the tremendous outrage over having not quoted him enough recently. Dallas Willard says this, The kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's own native language, what they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who is watching, for they are absorbed in love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. Wow, it's beautiful. And really, this sort of disposition can and will affect all of our discipleship, our entire lives, not just giving to the needy. This is why we go on and on and on about the three goals of discipleship here at Van City: to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and out of that, to do the things that Jesus did. And Jesus ends this teaching by saying that your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And I was a bit confused by this language uh, when I studied this week, but then I discovered this very lovely, very tender dimension to the text. Um, here's a great way that I came to understand it. When I came, when I come home from work during the week, my two kids uh, run to me. as kids often do to the parent they haven't seen in a minute. Isla, she sort of lumbers and waddles, you know, and falls over while she's doing it. But she's just one, so give her a break. And for the first hour of my being home, they both have so much to say, like Beck, who's almost four, he's trying to compact the entire day's events and some from other days and future predictions, all compiled into a single run-on sentence. Uh, Isla, whose vocabulary consists of about six words and a series of soothing coups, uh, she's attempting to do the same thing with even less effective results. So often I'm I'm like being given tours of things with which I'm already deeply familiar. Oh, here's my room. Yeah, I know. I see it every day. Here's my toys. Yep, they're still there. Here's a rock that we discovered last week. I remember the rock. I was there. Um, Sometimes I'm told about some new accomplishment that happened that day or, or I'm shown some painting that happened or a construction from toy blocks or whatever it might be. Even Isla, she wants me to hold her doll, kiss the doll, hand the doll back, take the doll again. Here's the doll. Have the blanket with the doll. Give the doll back. Kiss the doll. And we go back and forth that way. And I've noticed that the nuance of the way that I react, the feedback that I give them, is often entirely consequential. What they want is for me to be close and to listen and to hear them and to see them and to approve of them, even if that just means sitting there and smiling on them. And this is actually innately human. How many of you guys know someone who has not been noticed by their father or their mother or someone they admired. And as a result, they continue to search for approval as an adult. Um, I know this wonderful fellow who's estranged from his dad, a dad who it seems to me may be very lousy. And sometimes this gentleman I know can become so hurt and even so aggravated with people in his life for whom he has great admiration. And it seems to me that in almost every case, he wants them to see him and hear him And know him. It isn't that he wants some sort of specific approval, just the fact that he's seen and valued. And I think this might be why Jesus says absolutely nothing specific about what the reward is. Whatever it is, it has something to do with the Father seeing you. To end tonight, I I just want to say a tiny bit about contextualization. You know, part of what it means to study and know the scriptures is to understand the way the Bible is written for, but not to us. Meaning, Matthew imagined an audience, and it it wasn't you and I, no offense. Uh, We are not first century Jewish disciples of Jesus living in the ancient Near East. As a result, many of Matthew's, and Jesus for that matter, uh, paradigms and examples seem strange and often irrelevant to us. Because, one, we're, we're really not a culture of tradition, by and large. But uh, for the most part, many of us scoff at the idea of ritual and tradition. We're, we're not a culture that takes the spiritual disciplines for granted. They're not really a part of our everyday life. In fact, our church is so desperately trying to relearn what it means to practice the way of Jesus for that very reason. Um, much of our culture at large isn't exactly conservative or hyper religious. Uh, we aren't, by and large, a disciplined people or a generation. Consequently, many of the things Jesus assumes of his audience in this passage aren't exactly true of us and our time and our place in the specific sense. But just because Matthew didn't have us specifically in mind doesn't mean that the scripture isn't in another way for us. After all, Jesus is, in essence, condemning a way of life in in which one behaves in such a way to elicit the acclaim of others. And I think that's something we actually know very well. Whether that's something we're guilty of or something we see all around us, that is sort of the air that we breathe. The never ending facade of a curated version of your projected uh, online or social self. You know, beautiful home, beautiful possessions, beautiful families, beautiful vacations, beautiful scenery, cool music recommendations, cool film critiques, cool socio political commentary, cool interior design, important thoughts about race relations and war and Netflix and fine eateries and fashion and the bad. Bachelor, all in 140 characters, and impressive educations, and book collections, and travelogues, and resumes, and diets, and abs, and, and impressive CrossFit routines, and impressive sugar fasts that go on and on, uh, obscure art preferences, uh, one-upmanship, humble brags, retweets, selfies, me, 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 I got here first, I was here, I matter. And all of it, every last bit, in a horribly infinite locomotion dictated by the approval of other people. This is your life. It's ending one moment at a time. And Jesus has something to say about all this. And this week, I think the call for us is to reject the status quo, whether that's something that you're guilty of or whether you see it all around you. Take a small incremental step by doing Jesus' suggestion. Do something kind and tell no one. Uh, I was at dinner recently with this large group of friends, and near the end of the meal, an expensive meal, the waitress let us know that we were all set. Someone had taken care of the bill, and the restaurant was totally empty. It had to be someone at the table, and no one came forward, and it didn't become this big awkward thing. It was just like, ah, well, whoever did that, that was pretty cool. Thanks, we all said into thin air. Uh, A few months ago uh abby and i were were leading our family out of a grocery store and we were approached by this woman she handed abby a toy that she had purchased inside a toy uh that she had seen one of our kids look at she told abby that she had had a horrible day and to cheer herself up she'd seen beck admiring this toy inside and she bought it for him and with that she disappeared we never heard anything else from her another guy i know Uh, when buying coffee at a drive-in will sometimes tell the cashier, also, whatever the guy behind me bought, put it on my card. And and they'll never even seen that person or hear, hear from them ever again. How many of you guys are in communities or know communities or friends or people that work with DHS or that sponsor kids or that have taken foster kids or adopted kids into their homes or that make refugee care boxes or that travel to the developing world or they work at a rescue mission, whatever it might be, they are dispensing mercy. They are giving alms. So this week do something like that, a little thing, try it, specifically motivated, by the Father's recognition, not the recognition or approval of other people. And when you do, I would invite you guys to actually stop and imagine something specifically. Whether you're picking up somebody's coffee tab without telling them, or you're doing work at DHS, whatever it might be, imagine the Father speaking over you. Yes, that's it, I see that. I celebrate you. I see what you're doing. I value you. Imagine the approval and the celebration of your father. Imagine the kindness in his voice as he celebrates your act of kindness. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. With that, let's pray and ask the Spirit to come speak over us.